0: Hi, welcome to another episode of Record, Talk, Listen. This is Lydia. Thanks for joining me. So I have a podcast. It's a platform where people can hear me speak, and I'm lucky to have it. So I'm starting to use it. I'm going to wield it in a way that I feel appropriate. It's a powerful thing, your voice. So I'm here to uh, to talk about things that maybe are uncomfortable, And if you thought, oh, this is a podcast where I can escape what's going on, this week's not that week. We're talking about racism. This episode deals with how to start those conversations, those difficult conversations. So I had a dear friend, Nancy, come over and we discussed, discussed it. So you should too. Don't be afraid of it. If you're uncomfortable, that's a good thing. Just keep that in mind. Remember to go to our website, recordtechlisten.com. We're going to have some resources available there for you to take a look at. And if you find that you can contribute to them in any way, we highly encourage you to do that. We also have a voice memo project, which we'll talk about later in the episode. So thank you very much for listening. I hope you continue to listen. Share this with people if you find it to be helpful. Enjoy. Nancy, thank you for joining me on the podcast. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. So we're, I called you last week or I got in touch with you last week and said, right. um, we needed to have a chat and you agreed and now we're here. So thank you for the quick turnaround. I appreciate of course. it. Yeah. I'm um, happy so, to be here and even, and a lot
1: has happened in a week even.
0: Totally. Yeah. Oh yeah. Which is even more the reason for this to be a priority conversation. Yeah. Um, so we're here to try to figure out how to start start the conversation about um, racism in America and how, if you feel uncomfortable about it, that's good because that's how you grow right um, yes. and maybe start to talk about some basic things and some resources mm-hmm. and how to get started and how to get involved in a way that you can do safely, depending upon pandemic issues or just um, your location, right Yeah. So, and how do you push your
1: comfort level just a little bit farther or a lot farther Yeah, too?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Cause it's good to get out of your comfort zone Mm -hmm. as they say. Yes. Especially as a white person. Yes, absolutely. All right. So, um, so where do we start?
1: Where do we start? That's a question. I guess that's the
0: overarching question. Like where do we start? It's a heavy conversation, Mm -hmm. but I think we hopefully will do the best we can to make it, um, as concise as possible so people can use this as a jumping off point.
1: Right. Yeah. And we could also think about who this conversation is for. It's a conversation between you and me Mm -hmm. in Cumberland, Maryland. So, you know, what context uh, do we want to provide for this conversation? Do we want to provide some kind of geographic context of us being here in a small community? Uh, I mean, we can do both, I think,
0: mm -hmm. because you live in new york city most right. of the time yes so that's pretty we, we're offering two different extremes mm-hmm. yes yes so i think we can... i actually have the yeah the pleasure of being
1: in western maryland right now because unfortunately of uh, uh
0: because of this pandemic right so yeah and yeah i think that it's a conversation that can be accessible for people that um, need to have the conversation but not really sure where to start with maybe members of their family or friends mm-hmm. and they can just say hey listen to this podcast is a jumping off point mm-hmm. um, you know that's that's the minimum at least and right. then also offering just some perspectives of living in a small town versus a major city yeah um, and how sometimes you know we can feel kind of isolated out here mm-hmm. um, but it doesn't mean that there aren't social justice issues in this own town that that you know need that don't need to be addressed right definitely yeah
1: I think one place we can start one place anyone can start is knowing their own story Mm -hmm. and connecting to that and feeling comfortable talking about that and feeling comfortable talking about who you are and the different social identities you carry around with you whether it's skin color or age or your size or your income or your sexual orientation or your ability or disability you may, uh, you may have. It's just really understanding who you are and how much privilege and power you have with all of those social identities you bring with you. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. yeah. And so once you figure out that, mm-hmm. then you can start to figure out some other things. Yeah, exactly. Definitely. Definitely. So, I mean, um, do you want to share your story? My story? Um, yeah, sure. I guess I could do that. Um, but I grew up in a a very different household. I am realizing, um, as I get older and speak to other people, um, my parents are, were very active in social justice. My mother more than, more so than I think probably other moms. My mom was in Watts, California in the sixties, worked with the black Panther party, um, She has her degree in social work with a minor in black studies and so was very impassioned about making sure that her own daughter understood the ins and outs of racial injustice and how it wasn't good. And it could just be racial injustice. It also could be, you know, any sort of any group of people that weren't considered the norm Mm -hmm. um, in society Mm -hmm. being those are those are your people. Mm -hmm. That's basically... How I was raised. It's sort of like the norms of society are really not great. And you should probably there's more to that than meets the eye Mm -hmm. kind of a deal. They really didn't shield me from a lot. They had some very, you know, tough conversations with me as a little kid about, you know, like, okay, you know, this person might have felt this way because of A, B, and C, and what would you do if you were in that position? Mm -hmm. And, you know, kind of teaching me in a way that I think most people probably don't have access to right you were um, lucky you were lucky that at, extremely, at a young lucky. age extremely you were lucky. introduced to that kind of analysis yeah that really and thinks then...
1: about uh other human beings being marginalized
0: right and love is love mm-hmm. i mean that was a yeah. huge thing and you know my parents uh my mom especially and my dad also being like an amazing father and a partner to my mom basically saying like yes i support you and all of the vast friendships that you have and the exposure that you're and well-roundedness that you're providing our daughter he didn't really push against that he Mm -hmm. was very much a part of that and supported that whether it was you know verbally or you know just just being there in that and just holding that space for her Mm -hmm. to be able to do those things Mm -hmm. um you know so i think
1: that's an important piece is holding space and Holding space through discomfort, holding space through uncertainty, holding space without knowing—yeah, yeah—is—is—is is, is definitely one way to begin supporting others.
0: Yeah. I think that's it. And I think that if you're too quick to judge somebody mm-hmm. else without giving them the, the space to kind of digest a lot of this information that's coming at them pretty rapidly, um, you have to be able to let them deal with it. There's a lot of things that people are like getting hit with and going, Oh my God, I had no idea. And then they have to give them time to process it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so my parents were were great and they're still great. Um, and they are great. They are great. You know, my parents are awesome and they really did. You know, there's a lot of social responsibility. Like I was raised with a lot of social consciousness and social responsibility and all that kind of stuff. Um, They ran their business that way, very much so, opening in a rural area and working with all socioeconomic Mm -hmm. um, patients and really trying to provide for people with disabilities and abilities and sort of all over the the gamut. So I didn't know anything that I didn't know that was a a problem. I knew it was a problem when I got older, but the people that I was surrounded with, I would have no idea what their income was. I didn't treat them any differently, Mm -hmm. at least as a child. I don't think that that was in my purview. Um, and then my best friend totally shaped my childhood in a way that I can't even to begin to say how amazing it was. And mm-hmm. I just thought it was, it was the best. We were born six days apart. Our mothers were pregnant together and I was like, they lived above my parents, uh, office in Kaiser. Mm-hmm. So we would just like run up the stairs and she and I would have like the best time ever. Um, and so, you know, so you've literally known her forever. I've known her my whole life. Wow. Well, except for six days. She's known me her whole life. We have that joke. She's six days younger than me. So, um, yeah, so she's known me her whole life and I had to wait a little bit for her to arrive. So, but yeah, no, we've been together. We've been together and she's my person. She is my person. You're like sisters. Yeah. Totally like sisters. And so, you know, she understands me. She, she gets me. She, we both check up on each other. She has a beautiful family in South Carolina. And, you know, where I were actively a part of that and, you know, I just can't imagine my life without that, those experiences, those Mm -hmm. great experiences that we have. So you
1: also get to see the world through her eyes and, and she's black.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's one thing that I, you know, when I talk about her, that's never a thing that comes Mm -hmm. up in my mind Mm -hmm. is saying like, you know, my best friend is black, right? It's like, no, my best friend, Sarah, she's awesome. And she has a beautiful family all those things that doesn't that doesn't even come into a, a play in my mind as a descriptor for her because mm-hmm. she's so much more than that mm-hmm. and i think that you know as soon as you start putting people in boxes with labels and and all of that kind of stuff you really lose the essence of the person and mm-hmm. it doesn't really matter yeah um and that's what it boils down to and so like i never use I never use her race as a descriptor, mm-hmm. and I don't know... But h- I wonder how
1: old you were when you realized that race was this social construct. I that- don't know. Mm-hmm.
0: I mean, I think... I think part of it is that you kind of understand at a sort of a base level. Like, you kind of know before you really can understand. Yeah. Um, but I don't, I don't know. I mean, it's probably when you're looking... Uh, you know, you hear about Martin Luther King and there's like in Sarah's house, there's a picture of Dr. Martin Luther King in the mm-hmm. house and you're just like, okay, well, this is a person, this is a really highly respected person who studied the teachings of Gandhi and, you know, you, you learn about the person and then you have also like black history month and the schools that I went to, they really took it seriously and you learned about black history. mm mm-hmm. And then I think as you get older, you kinda of learn about the Civil War and the kind of breakdown of that and you know, all that kind of stuff. And then you kinda of get into the little bit you know, you get a little bit into more deep rooted how deep rooted the issue really is. Mm-hmm. And I think And that's f- when you start to think about And that's hey, when you start to think about all of these things differently. Yeah. That's how you why look- do we
1: only focus on black history in one the month, month out of February? The year. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. The shortest month of the year. Um
0: mm-hmm. uh, But my my whole thing is like I just Never. I don't think it really hit me until I was much older and I could really fully understand how deep rooted um, racism yeah. is in just everyday cultural experiences mm-hmm. and how really terrible, you know, some person, some a white person could be arrested for something and this is their sentence and a, a black right. person would be arrested and this would be their sentence mm-hmm. and it, it would be the same crime but there's different outcomes right? Right. at at every step of the way. Right. Yeah. So I, you know, I became more and more aware of that as you get older. I probably more so in like middle, late middle school, high school area, you're like really getting into history and that kind of stuff. And then, you know, but then again, looking at your friend and being like, yeah, I like, I, okay, now I see, I see the whole societal thing. And if there was a problem, like she and I would talk about it. Yeah. And we're very open with each other. Like, if I'm saying, like, what? Do, like, I call her and I say, okay, what? After every unnecessary death, right? I'm on the phone with her, being like, what? How? How are you? How are you feeling? Like, yeah. what? What can I do? You know? Mm-hmm. And then most of the conversation is, well, you're doing it. You yeah. know, you you're called. holding space. You're yeah, holding space. You yeah. Yeah. So that I mean, that's my yeah. own. You you're called. You're
1: paying attention. Yeah. you're aware. You're learning. Those are, yeah, such important things. That's
0: it, you know, and that's, and I think that if it comes down to, you know, not everybody has a relationship like I have with Sarah, which is magical Mm -hmm. to say the least, but not everybody has a relationship like that. And I'm not saying everybody has to, that's not the aim of that. And the, the aim is basically you need to find a base level of respect for everybody and you're not doing any better than the lowest person. Mm Mm-hmm. So, you know, you're not any better than that person. And if you're not both on the same equal playing field, then that's a problem. So I just, I think that now people are really tired. They're yeah. just so tired mm-hmm. of being tired right. of seeing like the same things happening over and over again. And you, every time you feel like maybe this is where people are going to get it together and there's going to be change, you just feel like you just get beaten down again and again. Right. And that cannot be easy. Um, I have a hard time with that I can't mm-hmm. I can't imagine what it's like if you're black in this country right yeah and, and seeing the
1: same thing over and over again and yeah. saying okay yeah th- someone was unnecessarily murdered and we're gonna have a couple of days of protests and then uh and then people go about their business afterwards
0: right I think there's there's definitely an undercurrent now that's different much different than in the past yeah Um, it's from, it's all over the world, basically the outrage about this. Um, so I just, I think that, which is amazing. Absolutely. But it needs to be sustained Mm -hmm. and it needs to be transferred from protesting, which is a highly important part of American history, um, into next steps
1: and strategies and 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 an understanding of how to undo. Yeah. Structures. Yeah.
0: And they're structures that have been in place for hundreds of years. Mm-hmm. They're just not, you know, nobody's doing anything to take them apart. And right. like they're not working. It's clear that they're not working. We have a uh, industrialized prison system mm-hmm. where it's like business, right, right. You know, for profit industry. It's a for it's a for-profit profit industry. industry. They're actually prisoners do labor in these prisons to make goods for the United States. Right. It basically, you know it's it's slavery all over again but in a context that people
1: paid not even close to minimum wage not
0: even close to minimum wage and you know it's like the people seem to feel like that's an okay thing because they made poor choices and they ended up in there because of poor choices which it's that's not the case right you know and you know we live in a small town that Mm -hmm. the employment the majority of the employment or a lot of the employment comes from these prison systems. Right. So how does that make me feel as like a contributing factor to the infrastructure of unjust racism in the justice department? Exactly. You know, yeah. Yeah. So so the, so the
1: for-profit prison industrial complex or the for-profit prison industry uh, pays, to contribute to the economy Mm. of any small community that actually has a large prison in it. So that's really complicated.
0: It's complicated. Those people uh, work hard. They're under a lot of stress, a lot of them. Um, The the people who work at the facilities are under mm -hmm. a lot of stress, but they also get paid probably more than... They would at another job and they get health insurance and a pension. So, Mm -hmm. you know, so how do you. That's right. That's another factor. This is another factor. A a
1: job at a prison in small communities that are uh, economically uh, depressed Mm -hmm. is is technically considered, quote, a good job. Yeah.
0: So that's that's a thing. That's like Mm -hmm. a thing I had a thought. I was, you know. You just think, yeah, I have a hard time sleeping, you know, so you get yeah. up in the middle of the night and you start thinking about all these things and you think about, well, you know, a Cumberland and its whole is probably, you know, not as bad as other places. Mm-hmm. And then you go, well, but then you've got this big elephant in the room, so to speak. Right. Um, with the prison systems. Mm-hmm. And you can say, you can look at it from both sides and saying like, yeah, it's a, it's a good, it's a good job. Right. But. Good job. Right. What Good job for the employee. Good job for the employees, <laughs> right. But you know, it's the whole thing, it's like, well, can you blame them for having to do that? And you can say, well, you know, I don't know. That this is the this is a quandary. So right. you're into like a philosophical situation. Right, right. But if uh if you had prison guards that weren't, you know, having the population that we have, but they still have their job because you have to have so many officers per square foot, but you don't have that many prisoners, you know, I'd be happier with that. I think mm-hmm. that's something that's like a happy medium. Mm-hmm. But, you know, and I don't think that it should be a for-profit industry. Right. Right. Yeah. Because it's not meant to... It's not meant to... People are not made to have money being made from them. Right. Do you exactly. know what I mean?
1: Right. Yeah. There shouldn't be a financial incentive to disproportionately punish and
0: dehumanize a whole group of people. Right. When the the whole point of the prison system is... What they say it is is to rehabilitate, and I don't know. And there's no evidence of any. There's no evidence of that, happening. right? Or you know, the recidivism rate is super high mm-hmm. because you're not. If you think about it, you're you're putting in putting people out that have not been a part of society for however long. It could be six months. It could be ten years. It could be fifteen years, twenty years. You're asking somebody that has been in a certain situation for that long period of time or short period of time to then leave that and go into society where there's new things they've never experienced. There's new, maybe new laws they're not aware of Mm -hmm. new situations and you're just sort of throwing them out and going like, well, figure it out. I hope Mm -hmm. you don't end up back here, but you know, see you later. Yeah. And And in many cases, I don't, I don't know uh, about, The prison population
1: here but it but in many cases people who are imprisoned are taken out of their communities Mm -hmm. and they're in a prison very far away from home from their social network from from any kind of social capital they could stay connected to correct so how do they go back to that community and rebuild that right and And then then and then here in the communities where there are prisons There's some kind of perpetuation of this stereotype or message or, uh, I don't know, um, social construct that these people who we call prisoners are uh, people to be feared. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
0: That's Mm -hmm. a huge part of it, I think, Mm -hmm. is fear. You know, it's like fear of the unknown, right? So, like, if you don't know it, you've not had any firsthand experience, then obviously there's going to be some hesitation. Mm -hmm. Fearing people, I think, is like you shouldn't fear someone that you shouldn't fear anybody. You, you should look at it yeah. this way. Do, do I want to be perceived as somebody that you should be afraid of? No, no one does. No. So why would you think that
1: somebody else would be right. fearful? Exactly. Yeah. And I just, well, it, no one does unless
0: you're someone who
1: wants to dominate others.
0: Right. And those that's, but that doesn't, that's trans Right. That, I mean, mm-hmm. that doesn't matter who you are. Or what group you belong to. Mm -hmm. You know, that's everywhere. But over
1: history, white people have been dominating.
0: The conversation. People of color. Yeah. Yeah, Absolutely. Oh, Mm -hmm. totally. I mean, Mm -hmm. 100%. And I think a lot of it is just, I don't understand what the fear is of equality. I don't Mm -hmm. understand the fear of equality. Are you afraid? Yeah. That because you did such, your ancestors did such horrible things that if that group of people become the predominant people in power that they would do that try to do what you did to them
1: yeah i think it's a fear of i think it's a fear people have of losing what they have losing power or losing resources or lo- losing their job in in some instances oh people you know people say people people from other countries are coming in and taking our jobs. Mm-hmm. It's it's these these things people have or either power or resources that they're afraid they're going to lose if if these resources are redistributed in a in a in a more fair way.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I mean it's it's a bottom up problem, mm-hmm. you know, like you have people that are in a socioeconomic class that can never seem to get ahead and they could work 10 jobs and never get ahead of this and never get ahead mm-hmm. and you know that shouldn't be and we have the ability to take care of everybody i mean we're upside down in wealth equality in this country mm-hmm. in a significant way and it's it's not good mm-hmm. and my thing is if everybody does well then everybody wins actually that brings up
1: this uh co- this concept we were talking about earlier this universal basic income yeah it's uh especially now with this pandemic that idea of a universal basic income has come up yeah uh and you know I don't know is is it a possibility now to introduce this concept of you know everyone having some kind of universal basic income I mean, I not think, one check that someone gets I think Andrew time. Yang
0: did a good job of introducing mm-hmm. that into the yeah. vernacular of universal income and I will say at the beginning of the pandemic when we weren't really sure what, who was the most affected group of people with the pandemic those words were being thrown around by some pretty high and high up republicans oh right. universal income medicare for all blah 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 oh well then we wait a month and then the stats come in that the most affected people are low-income families of color those those just disappeared those ideas yeah. just disappeared from the lips of those people because they thought well you know and the problem That's is is that if they had access to health care if they had access to um uh, Universal income, they could seek the treatment that they needed. They could also sustain their Mm -hmm. families without having to work so many jobs that then cause so many health problems of stress and all that other kind of stuff. You know, so it's, it all compounds upon each other. And for people not to see that that is like, could be a potential savior for a lot of people. The universal income wouldn't be for people in a certain bracket, tax bracket, Mm -hmm. that just wouldn't make sense. But for people that, you know, could then afford to feed their family without having to like really Mm -hmm. stretch their budget or they could actually save and they could pay off their debt and they could get ahead. You know, what is the harm in that? Right.
1: There are some studies happening now testing the effectiveness of universal income Mm -hmm. in communities. Right. And yeah, the studies are still underway, but it looks like. Uh, Not surprising, uh, the whole community does better when there is a universal basic income. Someone at the University of Pennsylvania, Amy uh, Castro, Amy Baker Castro, is one of the leaders in in one of the studies that's happening across the country. Right. Mm -hmm. So,
0: I mean, I think that that's, I mean, come on, it's one of those things where it's like, yeah, the cost of living is going up, minimum wage hasn't gone up in years, and then you're expecting people to perform miracles with their budget, which, you know... It's not going to happen. Gonna happen. <laughs> so I realized that I talked about my story, but I didn't uh, really talk about your story, okay. which yeah. is probably an error on my part as being no, an no. Interview, no, interviewer. So Nancy, what's your story? Okay,
1: so, yeah. So I'm not used to talking much about my story. Yeah, but, me neither. Uh, <laughs> so, so here we are. Uh-huh. Okay, so uh, I am I am white. I uh, was born in Queens, New York, and for the first four years of my life lived in an apartment uh, above my grandparents' home in Queens. Uh, and my grandparents, my mother's parents, were a combination of different ethnicities, Cuban, German, English, Irish, and think I got them all. I'm not sure. And uh, my father's family, uh, my grandparents, who I lived uh, in an apartment with, uh, they were Italian. And they lived in a very white community in Queens, uh, Glendale, New York. And uh, apparently from uh, our family's uh, folklore, uh, my Cuban grandfather was uh looking for a house his last name was gonzalez and he was looking for a house to buy for he for himself and his wife and there at that time i think four or five kids and uh he actually had to change his last name on the house deed so that he could move into the neighborhood where he was where he eventually bought his
0: house oh my goodness
1: so yeah so uh um, yeah, this was a traditionally German neighborhood. So uh, my mother's family and my father's family uh, were, were these first kind of families who we now consider white, who were you know families of color back then. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm not claiming any kind of uh, status in that in that story. Right. I'm just mm-hmm. saying, I'm just sharing the story. So then, when I was four years old, uh, my family moved to a small. Uh, town in Long Island where my father owned a dry cleaning store Nice, and uh, it was a predominantly white community. Uh, Some uh, students of color in the um, public school district where I went to school and uh, throughout maybe junior high and high school I was able to work for the dry cleaning store where my father that my father owned and through his business he 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 became really close with his employees and it was kind of like a it was a family-run business Mm -hmm. and uh the people who worked for him worked for him for a really long time and uh uh, we socialized together and uh sometimes his employees would uh would come over and hang out and uh They were people from all different countries, all different races, people who were gay, people who were not gay. So I feel like I was kind of introduced to a little bit of uh, multiculturalism growing up. Uh, But predominantly, our neighborhood was white. We were in a community in Long Island that benefited tremendously from the GI Bill after World War II, where, uh, you know, white people were able to borrow money for houses or or get money somehow to to purchase houses and uh, black families were not given that benefit right so uh, that's kind of the environment where I grew up Um, and then somehow I knew I wanted to leave that community and go to college to really kind of Find out what else there was in the world. So I, so I try, So I was able to go to college as far away as my family would let me, which was only Maryland. Yeah. Okay. Uh, <laughs> nice. So, so moved from New York to Maryland, uh, and actually, that's where I met my my current partner. And uh, through my undergraduate experience, and then after graduating from college, I became interested in the fields of uh, aging and hospice. And uh, eventually became a social worker who was interested in uh, aging services. The uh, the retirement communities where I worked, you could absolutely see this uh, kind of unspoken racism or white supremacy that showed up. And I was really lucky. This was in I think the very early nineties, and I was I was lucky to be a part of this community this retirement community where people who lived there were also members uh they were also uh, were very active in the civil rights movement but Mm -hmm. at this time they were uh they were older and they were retired and they were living in this retirement community so residents of this community and staff and management got together to start to talk about Race and social justice, and uh, back then we called it, you know, the diversity committee. That's sure. when that's when this 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 term diversity was, uh, it was just starting to be talked about, mm-hmm. and kind of at corporate levels and and in in practice in nonprofit communities. So uh, that's kind of where I became more interested in the field of social work, and then went back to school and became a social worker and. Uh, and started uh examining my own kind of whiteness and my role in white supremacy and uh and you know constantly and humbly learning uh a lot about the privilege I bring to uh to uh communities and the privilege I carry around with me being a white person in spaces
0: and uh trying to use that in whatever way i can yeah, yeah. i mean I, that's the thing it's like um, you know, white privilege is, is something that is given to you by other people. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, like I'm, I'm Jewish mm-hmm. and I'm Greek. So, mm-hmm. um, I get constantly you know, I don't like the labels of either of those things. I mean, I, I'm right. not, I'm not like saying I don't like being Jewish and I don't like being <laughs> Greek. That's not what I'm saying. I, don't, I own those things, but you know, so people look at you you're much more than who you and that says so, so for me to be like I don't like people to put a label on me and and assume something anything about me because right. you don't know
1: me right so and that, you don't want to be othered. you don't want
0: to be I put know, into yeah, a box. Exactly. you don't want
1: your story told by someone else just because you use this correct. label correct
0: yeah. um so you know like I always had a problem and I think it, it you know it goes back to my parents being my parents you know it's sort of like you know when they ask you what your race is on anything I would just put human um because that's how I really feel about it. And yeah. I never felt comfortable checking the white box. Cause I don't view myself as, as that. Right. Cause I've always been, I feel like I'm other mm-hmm. cause I'm, it's just sort of like, no, I don't, I don't want to be, the, I don't want to be white. Cause I right. feel like that's, it's embarrassing. It's, right? <laughs> it's a little bit loaded. <laughs> it's Do you know what I mean? It doesn't tell your full story. No, that's mm-hmm. it. And so I never felt it. It was, and I never really understood the race question anyway on mm-hmm. a form. You know, why does that matter? Um, just like being like what's the difference between me being a woman and being a man nothing just some you know well yeah. some you know scientific stuff other than that my right. brain works just the same mm-hmm. and everything else fine but you know that's that's how it should be and i think it's it's a broader conversation the race conversation is hard right because you don't want to offend anybody but you know at the same time it's like okay if i offended you Awesome. Let's talk about it because right. let me have the ability to learn or let me kind of figure out where you are on your journey to try to figure out how, where you are in society. And I think a lot of it is people being insecure with who they are and where they're standing yeah. and yeah. how they value themselves. Because if you value yourself and your opinion and your properties as a human being, then you can easily see what's going on as inappropriate. Mm-hmm so um education is something that springs to mind immediately when something is like this is happening yeah education humility Mm
1: -hmm. yeah knowing it's okay to make mistakes knowing it's okay to
0: not know everything yeah or you can say like i don't know yeah i say that a lot because i don't know yeah um what are we going to do i don't know that doesn't mean i'm not going to figure it out or Mm -hmm. try to figure it out or be active about it i think that the best thing you can do is to seek out the, the, the vast resources that are available. Right. Definitely. And I'll tell you, you know, the difference between 1968 and now is that we have all of those things right at our fingertips. Yes. This, this is thing called the internet. There's really no excuse. Yes. Not um, at all. So I found, uh, this this thing It's called the anti-racism resource resources for white people. It's a Google document so people can add to it. And, which is really great, which is really amazing. And it has, um, a lot of different resources. Yeah,
1: I think what's really interesting, too, is um, just the concept of collectively putting together this document mm-hmm. is almost like an anti-racist approach, where yeah. uh, it's non-hierarchical, everyone can contribute, it's, yeah. a, com- it's a community effort. Uh, yeah. You know, that kind of undoes this traditional, uh, hierarchical, white, patriarchal, yeah, uh, kind of capitalist structure. Totally, yeah.
0: totally, and it, it, it has something for everybody, which mm-hmm. I like, because everybody learns differently, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, you can read a book, you can watch a video, you can listen to a podcast. So, however you feel like you're best That's great. at learning, there there are things there for you to access. Um, so I'm I'm happy about that. I'm also. There's films and TV series, mm-hmm. so you can watch movies. Mm-hmm. Watching a movie isn't bad or a documentary. It's like if, that's how, if you're a visual learner, then do that. You can listen right. to TED Talks. You can watch a movie. A dramatized version is still a version of history that you're going to be getting into your head yeah. that gives you some, a different perspective. And then also,
1: and you can can talk about that movie. You can talk about that movie. Other people. Exactly right.
0: And then you can also follow, it has organizations to follow on social media, Mm -hmm. which I feel like is really the difference about bringing the whole of the collective together is talking is following each other and being active and being aware. So you can't sort of say, like, well, I didn't know this was happening. Because now you have to be like living in a bunker not to know that this is
1: definitely we know someone who is
0: living in a bunker right now
1: but yeah yes yes
0: (laughs) and then voting that's like the the other thing education and then voting so education
1: um, voting and being active in your in your community community in whatever way you can be right whether it's raising your children in a community uh that's that diverse exactly
0: and i think also you know Or, you know, if you live in a rural area like this, there is diversity here. You just have to seek it out and you have to make sure that you want to be an active participant in that. Um, Because it's there. Even here in this really tiny town, there's a lot of diversity Mm -hmm. here. Um, So I just, there is this this thing, this anti-racism resource page. And I will put it on our website so people can get the link right away. And take a look at it. And And if you see any other resources
1: you think are missing, you can add to it, which mm -hmm. is great. Yeah. Actually, there are so so many good resources on this list. I know this list is probably uh, not complete and people will be adding to it, which is really great. Mm -hmm. But some of the things that stuck out for me were, uh, this is related to the conversation we were having about mass incarceration. Yeah. Uh, The book by Michelle Alexander, The New Jim Crow. Mass Incarceration in the Age of Colorblindness. That's a great book that really lays out this uh, very clear kind of lineage from, uh, you know, from slavery through the current uh, prison industrial complex. Uh, Another great book uh, is uh, a story, let me see, The Next American Revolution. The Next American Revolution, Sustainable Activism for the 21st Century. It's by Grace Lee Boggs, and she is, uh, or was, she died a couple of years ago. Uh, She was an activist in mostly the Detroit area. Mm -hmm. She was a, a Chinese woman who actually got her Ph.D., in i believe the 1930s wow and yes it was very rare for women and for chinese women to uh get uh phds at that time and uh she actually uh moved to uh i think chicago and then ended up in detroit uh, with her husband uh jim boggs or james boggs and they were really active in the black panther movement Mm -hmm. And, uh, later in her life, she became a pretty influential kind of philosopher around this idea of community organizing and, and strategy development for revolution. And, and her idea is that this, this work really starts at home. It Mm -hmm. really starts with you. It really has to happen locally, uh, and, uh, must include action, uh, at the local level, including voting. Yeah. So, yeah. I think also something reading. that
0: we need to address is what you feel like you're doing might not be enough. Yeah. And that's okay because we all feel like that, right? I mean, I feel right. like that right now. Right. Um, But what you're doing is you're being, you're actively thinking about it. Right. Which is more than you were doing 10 days ago. Exactly. A year ago. Yeah whatever. I mean, I just feel like if you're actively thinking about it, it's in your, it's in the front of your consciousness, then those are the biggest changes that you're going to be making. Mm -hmm. And then that way you can go into the world capable of being, of doing the right thing and being that person that stands up. Right. And I feel like don't, don't make yourself feel, don't beat yourself up that you're not, protesting or on the front lines there's a lot of really valuable things that you can be contributing to just i mean just having conversations just
1: having conversations like this one yeah and uh for for the white folks out there who might Need some support in feeling more comfortable in these conversations uh, or maybe not comfortable. It's okay to be uncomfortable. But just uh, this book by Robin DiAngelo, White Fragility, Why It's So Hard for White People to Talk About Racism. That might be one place to start.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like you need to be uncomfortable. Yeah. If you feel uncomfortable, that's good. Exactly. I feel like that's. I think that's where we started this conversation. That's where we started the conversation. We were like, I mean, come on. Everybody wants to be PC, but at the yeah. end of the day, you have to say, well, this, you know, if I offend somebody, I apologize. It's not about you. Right. <laughs> it's, uh, it's about a, a greater thing. So yeah. and I think that it justifies. And, and also I will say that our stories are our stories and those are our realities. Great. You might not Great agree point. with it, but that's, that, th- that's our truth. So. Yeah. Um, I think that's where we could all start too, understanding yeah.
1: our stories in the context of history and uh geography and demographics and where we are now absolutely and economics
0: yeah yeah because a lot of those things are all tied together Mm -hmm. as we have found yeah so thank you for coming over and talking about that thank you so
1: much thank you for this
0: amazing podcast uh no problem yeah you're Um, my my hero oh (laughs) thank you Uh, no, thanks. I mean, I have a platform for, for people to speak. So um, I'm encouraging oh, yes. people Speaking to do that. Oh, yeah. Speaking of that, yeah, you yeah. have the
1: Voice Memo Project. That's really exciting. Yeah. The Voice Memo Project um, is
0: great. And I'd it, love to hear what people's feelings are related to this to conversation. This. Yeah. Especially around this conversation. And it can be, you know, I felt uncomfortable. I didn't think it was great. I think you could have done better. Yeah, that's fine. Please challenge us. Yeah, yeah. That's fine. You know, I, you know, I need to hear those things. I'm not I am not above criticism. You have to be able to hear all sides. And so, you know, if you think that this wasn't great or it could be better or you want to have a different perspective or take on it, then send me a voice memo. You know, it's your voice recorded and then you just email it to me and then I can incorporate that into a podcast. And if you've got a question, I'll try to do my best to answer it or try to find somebody who can answer the question uh, and the way it deserves to be answered. That's great. So, so if I wanted
1: to send you a voice memo, I mm-hmm. would just record it on my phone, and email, email it to me. you. Yep. I could find your email on your website. Yeah.
0: Well, on the website, there is the whole tab at the very top. It's called the voice memo project. And you click on the tab and then it has for Android and for iOS or Apple products. It gives you a step-by-step on how to do a voice memo and how to send it in an email. Ooh, good. So there's really no excuses for people not to participate in the Voice Memo Project. And I think if um, you don't know where to start in yeah. uh, addressing or
1: talking about racism, that's, that's, that's a, a place, place to, to start.
0: start. And then also, I, li- I think it's going to be a really cool project to look back on in years, in years you know, ahead that you can see exactly a snapshot of a community um, dealing with a certain thing. Right. And when I started, it was because we were very isolated as a community because of the pandemic. Now it's, we need to come together in this time of isolation. Um, So it's shifted slightly, but it's still the same principle. It's, having your voice heard. And you can do it anonymously. If you want to remain anonymous, you can say that in the email. I would love to remain anonymous. And your voice will just be heard, but you will not be referred to by your first or last name. Um, what a cool idea. Yeah, I think it's a good... I thought. I mean, I thought about it because everybody has phones and everybody has a voice memo application or some sort of similar um, application to voice memo that you can record on and send me a thing. Mm-hmm. And it could be like how frustrated you are with something. I, I mean, it could be Anything. That's the beauty of it. You can ask me a question. You can just tell me a story. You can vent. You know, that's the beauty of it. And then you hopefully will find a sense of community on the podcast and we can all have an open dialogue. But that's the voice memo project. And I would really like if people would participate because... It's a good idea, but it's only as good as the people that participate. Right. Yeah. It can't exist without the voice memos. That's it. Mm-hmm. So send them in. Send them in. Send them in. It's really simple. And thanks for that plug, Nancy. I yeah, appreciate You're it. welcome. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, you're going, you're heading back to New York. Briefly. Yes.
1: Yes. I'm heading back to New York. I'm an associate professor at the Silverman School of Social Work and our building has been closed since March Mm -hmm. and there are some things in my office that I need to retrieve and the building will be open for one day. Wow.
0: So I'll drive up there, get my stuff, drive back. Nice. Mm -hmm. Nice. Well, we wish you a very safe trip. Thank you. um, Hopefully people write in, ask questions and we can maybe do this more frequently as more information comes about and yeah, organized and all that kind of stuff. Yeah.
1: So, yeah, so. we could sift through all of those voice memos you're going to get.
0: Absolutely. That would Hopefully. Be great. Fingers crossed. <laughs> I hope so.
1: Thank you so much. Thank you, Lydia.